Today we're going to conclude. I'm Pastor Evan, by the way. Glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're excited to open the Word of God together. We're in John 11, and I invite you to find John 11 this morning. We're going to conclude uh, a series that we've been doing uh, called Jesus Wept, When Grief and Hope Meet. And what we've seen so far as you find John 11, we'll be starting at verse 45 in just a moment. Let's review what we've seen so far, and I want to kind of draw some conclusions today. What we've seen is that what Mary, Martha, and the disciples expected throughout all of this uh, ordeal they had with Jesus was, didn't match reality. Um, they expected one thing, reality delivered another, and what they discovered was that the reality that Jesus delivers is better than anything they expected or thought would come to pass. We also saw, and we saw this profoundly last week in what I think is one of the core parts of the whole story, uh, where it says Jesus wept, we saw that grief and hope can sometimes mix together. That's actually okay. And it's, it's uh, Jesus showed emotion when he came, even though he knew his reality was better. But he first grieved and wept. And there were a number of reasons why he perhaps wept. We covered some of those last week. But grief and hope can sure mix together because our hope isn't just for later. It actually begins now. And we can grieve even now as we have a greater hope. And then today what we're going to see is that some people were not able to overcome their unmet expectations. And I want to explore that this morning. And I want to ask the question, and we asked it the first week, but we didn't cover it. Why explore this? Why explore all that we're doing with John 11, and particularly about this unmet expectations and people not being able to overcome those? Why are we looking at all of this in John 11? Let me give you three reasons. I'll give you up front, and then we'll take them piece by piece. The first is, why look at all of this in John 11? Well, our expectations, they're real, but they're not always based on reality. Sometimes they're based on things that we think is reality or have assumed or put together on our own, but they don't actually match up with, with what's actually happening in the world or even particularly what God has in mind. So we can believe them, we can act upon them, but they might not actually be as real as we think and, and go with reality. The second thing is that grief is powerful and sometimes emotions like grief and all that comes with that can either be ignored at our own peril, or they can overwhelm us. So the person standing on the edge of the cliff, for instance, they shouldn't ignore even the feeling, let alone the emotion, that perhaps danger lurks. But as they back up and they're in safety, they could be overwhelmed and still be in fear when they don't need to be. And we don't want to operate that way in the world. And then the third thing is that some people see what Jesus offers and say no, and some say yes. And we want to explore a little bit of why that might be the case as we look at this text. So let's start with the first one of those. Our expectations are real, not often based on reality, though, when we dig down a little bit. And I want to actually look at two parts of John. I'd stay in John 11. I'm going to go to John 1 for a moment, and then I'm going to come back to John 11 because there's a comparison that we can make that's worth noting. In John 1, 35 through 39... This is a, a favorite section of Scripture for me. It says, The next day, John, and that's John the Baptist, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. 
So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, I find it interesting just to note that the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of John are, what do you want? We're not going to explore that today, but there's a lot to explore there about our expectations. It's certainly an expectation question. What I want us to see here is verse 39. Jesus says, come and you will see. That's an invitation from Jesus, which is what he does. He invites us to see what he's up to and be transformed by him. Now we contrast that then with the passage we've been in. John eleven thirty four. 34. Lazarus has died. Jesus has arrived in Bethany. Martha's already confronted him. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. Mary's also now approached him. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. And Jesus comes on this, uh, and, and is talking to Mary and he sees her deep weeping. He's deeply moved. And verse 34 says, where have you laid him? He asked. And then Mary says this, come and you will see, Lord. So we have an invitation from Jesus that we see at the very beginning, and we shouldn't miss that Mary also gives an invitation very much like Jesus' initial invitation to the disciples. The invitation from Jesus is, come and you will see remarkable things that are beyond your expectations when you follow me. The invitation from Mary is, this story's over, come grieve with us. There's nothing more that can be done here. And yet, the invitation from Jesus is greater still. It overcomes that invitation that Mary gives to him. The invitation to Jesus will always bring us to greater reality than we could make on our own. And sometimes we do that with our expectations with Jesus. We go to him and we say, this story's done, Jesus. All that can be done has happened here. And God comes in and surprises us and says, no, it's not. There's a lot more to the story here that I have to unfold. Are you in? Second thing that we were pointing out here about why I look at this is that grief is powerful and it sometimes can be ignored and sometimes can be overpowering. And kind of the long and short of it is, you know, emotions are a God-given thing and we don't want to ignore them, but we don't want to overuse them. They can tell us something important. Jesus wept. We see that in verse 35 of this passage. We know there are many reasons why. Part of it might be grief. There are other reasons. I'll bring them up one, up, one of them up in a moment again. But when he raises Lazarus from the dead, his promise is revealed in those actions. The promise of Jesus is revealed in raising Lazarus from the dead. And the promise was seen in verses 25 and 26 of the text. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus said to her, it's Martha at this point, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's the promise, put in short, for Martha to hear and for everybody. And so that reality begins to be demonstrated in Lazarus being raised from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He can do all kinds of things, and all kinds of ways of bringing us back from the dead. But he says, let me start with something physical. Let me actually bring someone back. And Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb. And we see from the text, he stinks. Because he's already starting to decay. And Jesus invites him, literally, to new life. Raised from the dead Lazarus. 
come out of the tomb. I think as we covered last week, Jesus weeps for a number of reasons, but one of them that I think is the most profound is that the world that he loves is full of death and decay when Jesus promises life. Just like Lazarus decays in the tomb, in our own lives, death and decay reign too often. Not even physically, but in other ways. And so it begs an important question that I want to pose to you this morning, and it's posed to me as well. Anytime I ask a question, I'm asking it to myself too. Where is there decay in your life? Where is something rotting in the tomb and it needs to be brought back? It needs to be redeemed by Jesus. Sometimes, we need other people to step in our lives and say, that stinks in your life. You need to do something about that. But if we're really honest with ourselves, most of the time we know what stinks in our own lives. It needs to be addressed. I don't know. Is there a, anybody have an amen to that one? Do, do you know sometimes in your own life? Thank you. Mark knows. I can now pick out some of what you need to work on in the rest of the room. No, I'm just kidding. It's sort of like when we know we need to fix things in our diet or exercise or whatever New Year's resolution you pick, and we know the areas that we need to do it, and we say, this is going to be good, but I don't want to put in the effort. But we know it needs to change, and we don't do it. I was uh, A couple weeks ago, I was helping a relative, a cousin of mine, clean out an old farmhouse two hours south of here. I have great childhood memories of going to the farmhouse as a kid and playing around in it and running, you know, in the edge of the fields and all kinds of stuff and playing on old tractors and things like that. And so now it's completely it's unused. Nobody's living in it. Nobody's been living in it for a while. It's over 100 years old. And as we were getting some things out of the farmhouse, as you walk up the center stairs, you're leaning this way now. It's not about to fall over, but it will if nothing's done. And as you walk up the stairs, you know, you can not only feel that the stairs are leaning to one side, you can see that the floor itself is bowed from the center beam that's holding it up. It's not going to fall down tomorrow, but it will eventually fall down and it's working its way there. We know those areas in our lives that are leaning like that and need to be tended to. As you dwell on that, let's get to our, our actual passage today because some people hear and see what Jesus does and still they're able to say no. And I want to explore that uh, as our third part of this. So let's look at the, the actual, conclude the text. Let's look at John eleven forty five 45 through the end of the chapter. We'll read the whole thing here. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God 
to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and they stood in the temple, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. We should also note, uh, if you continue on in chapter 12, not only are they going after Jesus, they're going after Lazarus too. Poor guy gets raised from the dead and they're like, yeah, we got to kill him too. He's a, he's a problem. So let's look at our characters here. We have the Jews, as uh, John notes here, and we should just note that everybody's Jewish in the Gospel of John, but he's flagging, he's using it here uh, simply to flag a, uh, the group of people who are kind of bystanders, following along, looking in. There's nothing negative about it. He does use the term negatively for leaders as well at times, but that's not what it means here. These people, they saw Jesus make declarations. They saw him say things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. They saw him uh, proclaim things like, Lazarus is just asleep. And then they witnessed him actually say, now move the stone, Lazarus come out. So they saw the whole thing. And it says, verse 45, the, the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did. They believed in him. A plus B equals C. Pretty simple. He said he was going to do it. He did it. They said, something remarkable happened here. Must have been the work of God. We believe. Then you have the Jewish leaders. And obviously this section takes them into consideration quite deeply. Some of the, the Jews that uh, John is noting here did not believe, though. And they reported this to the Jewish leaders who then convened the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council to kind of oversee the the regulation of the laws and that we're following what God has spelled out in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. But what's interesting is if you pay attention to the context and look at verse 47, you know, they're, they're wondering, what are we accomplishing? It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. What are we accomplishing? They asked, here is this man performing many signs. I think it's important to note, they didn't deny that he was, point, that he was doing signs. They didn't say he was proclaiming to do signs and they're not done. He says, no, this guy's doing these signs. That's actually why they want to kill Lazarus later, because he's a visible sign that this guy was dead and everybody knew it, and now he's alive. So they're not denying that Jesus is doing these remarkable things. That is, Jesus said, you're going to see the glory of God on display. Of course, that actually is him on the cross. They don't realize that yet, but he's showing it as well in Lazarus being raised from the dead and they don't see it as the glory of God. They see it as something else, but definitely not the glory of God. Why would they come to a conclusion like this based on the evidence before them? And I'm going to flag a couple reasons that somebody might say no to what God has done in the world, whether miraculous sign or even the historical reality that the tomb was empty, and the best explanation is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Any number of things people can look at and still say no 
to God, one of the things that we hear in our day and age, people might say, is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Have you ever heard something like that? Well, Jesus was raised from the dead or any other number of things or somebody was miraculously healed or whatever the case might be, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which is an extraordinary useless statement. And the reason is because extraordinary claims only require ordinary evidence, just enough of it to prove that it happened. When somebody says extraordinary evidence, what they actually mean is, I wouldn't even believe it if you gave me more. That's what's actually being proclaimed in that, which actually leads to what I think we do see in the text. I don't think anybody's claiming that, but, it, but behind that is what we do see in the text from the religious leaders who saw Lazarus raised from the dead or knew that Lazarus was raised from the dead because they can see the guy, they knew he was dead, and still said no, that this is the power of God. They already had preconceived beliefs. They already were going to say no to anything Jesus did in the first place. They believed they knew what the Messiah was, and it wasn't Jesus, even though he was doing things that looked a whole lot like the Messiah. And they were going to say no, no matter what. And preconceived beliefs are difficult to overcome. You might just call it plain old hard-heartedness, even. Second thing we can say about what goes on with the religious leaders here is that they're preserving their power because they had it. And that's a strong motive for people. We're in charge, and it takes a lot to give that up because they want that control. They enjoy that control. Loss of control brings fear as well, which I think is one other reason why people, in this case, the leaders, wouldn't want to give it up. Fear of change probably lurks in there too, of the control, but also the change. It's powerful, and it stops a lot of people from making the changes they need to make, from looking at the evidence and moving forward. There's a, a Christian leader guy named Ken Coleman, and he said this a, about a year ago in a podcast I heard, and it's just it's stuck with me. People would rather be miserable than uncomfortable. Isn't that an interesting thought? People would rather be miserable than uncomfortable. So even though we know the change we need to make, and even though we know that the change we might need to make in some cases would be better, we'll choose comfort, even in some sense of misery, rather than the unknown, even if we can see that it probably would be better. That's the Jewish leaders. Now let's go to Mary, Martha, and the disciples. We need to round things out with them because they were also there. They were also witnessing all of this. They had their expectations completely changed by Jesus and what he did. These were insiders who had their doubts to begin with until Jesus came and acted, right? Thomas, at the very beginning of all this, when they say, Jesus says, we're going to go back to Judea then and go tend to Lazarus. And Thomas is like, well, I guess we'll go with Jesus and we'll die with him there. That's what's going to happen. He knows. Right attitude, wrong conclusion. We uh, have Mary and Martha. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would be alive. You know, they, they, they're making this assessment based on what they see, not on what Jesus is declaring he'll do. And so it brings us to one more question that I think we, as if you're God's people, if you follow Jesus Christ, need to ask. And even if you don't, you still need to ask it. Where do you hold God back with your limiting expectations? Where is God trying to work in your life, but because you expect that he can't, you don't go there? You don't allow them to get in. So it goes back to the, the decay question, but now it's on our part. Where are we saying no to God? 
Just the same way the religious leaders were saying no to God. We can do it personally. right? Sometimes we say no to God because we have a level of sentimentality that we're living with, for instance. We have an inherited faith, but we haven't claimed all of it ourselves. We know what was, uh, but we don't live it out fully ourselves. We, were, we hear or read God's word, and we say, well, just give me the comforting stuff. Just give me the stuff I know. Nothing challenging. So sometimes people wake up and they say, not today, Satan, but sometimes we actually wake up and say, not today, God. Don't challenge me, God. I just want the stuff that's going to make me feel good. We hold God back with our expectations. Sometimes it is just hard-heartedness. It can crouch in there and we become cynical and we say no to God in all kinds of different ways. Where do we hold God back with our limiting expectations? How about as God's people? Sometimes power and control are ways that we do it as God's people, as His church. That's not limited to any one church, but the smaller the church, the more that's pronounced, typically. That smaller churches tend to have people who really hold on to that power and control much more. And the reason is, because sometimes we don't have it at work. Sometimes we don't have it at home. Sometimes we don't have it in these places, but when I come to church, I have a voice. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it gets out of hand. And sometimes we hold God back because we're holding on to those things too tightly. As God's people, one other way that we sometimes do it, we hold God back, is fear of change. Which actually, if we really note what it is, it's fear of loss that we're concerned about. We're afraid, afraid of losing what was sometimes, not realizing what God could do. It happens all the time in church life, and it can be powerful and a powerful force working against God's mission if we're not attuned to it. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, you're going to see me glorified. You're going to see the glory of God in what I do. And we see that not just in Lazarus. We see that in his death and resurrection as well. And he calls us, he says, once you see me glorified, then believe. That's the order. I'm going to be glorified. Then you have a reason to believe. So believe. Thomas shows us the right attitude, wrong expectation. He says, you know, we'll just die with Jesus, but we'll follow him. Maybe at least have half that expectation, right? We'll follow Jesus anywhere. Mary and Martha, if you'd only been here, things would be different. True, but not as, ex not as they expected. We need to have higher expectations of what God could do. And the bottom line is the glory of God is visible through Jesus Christ. And it turns out it's also accessible through his Holy Spirit right now. Where do you hold God back with your limiting expectations? Let's go to prayer. Lord, thank you that you sent your Son to reveal your glory and to be glorified for our sake. May we not be people who just see the limitations, just see the loss, just live in the way things were, but in the way things are and the, what, the future that you've promised. You said, I'm the resurrection and the life. There are things in our lives that are decayed and broken down and need to be redeemed and remain unacknowledged, but send your Holy Spirit in right now, Lord, into all of our lives, everyone in the room, and reveal those areas, cast a light in those areas, open up the tomb, and release us from the death and decay that keeps us in there, and looks at you and says, yeah, I'll go, but reluctantly with you, Lord. Yeah, I can see that you'll do good things, but probably not as great as you're promising. 
Lord, may we see your glory on display even today. May your Holy Spirit work in us that we see the mission we're called to and we say, yes, Lord, today. Yes, Lord, today we are with you. Challenge us, guide us, lead us. Make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.